0: Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits, and this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me, and then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk, let's share information, let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flu Pod. I'm so excited. This is Season 2, Episode 13, and it's our friend cast. And in the pod with us, Greg Petillo. The New York Times calls him the best person in the world at what he does. With us in the pod, Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke. If you're driving, this is going to be the fun place to beatbox according to Greg Petillo. Usually I would go to the vault and feature some of my own playing, but we have included music like this latest track from Project Trio. Project Trio is Peter Seymour on bass, Eric Stevenson on cello, and Greg Petillo. We are also going to include the piece called Shark, which is from his new beatboxing book. Wait till you hear this. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad you're here. Greg Petillo, welcome to the Porter Flute Pod. You're in it.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm sure you know the story, but I'm gonna repeat it. Maybe you don't know the story. Maybe he doesn't know the story of Peter and the Wolf and how I found out from (laughs) Flora. And Flora Alexander comes in. She's my music education major. And she said, Professor Porter, have you heard this man played Peter and the Wolf in a completely new way, and he's, he's beatboxing, and, and I, you need to hear this. And I said, no. And so she came around to, at that, uh, those years, the big monitor, and it took a while to pull up, and we pulled up uh, this video of you playing Peter and the Wolf, and it was extraordinary. But kind of halfway through, I looked over my left shoulder at Flora and said, Flora, where's the box? And she said, uh, "What box?" And I said, "Well, so there must be a box under the camera. Maybe we just can't see it. But he's playing, and then he's kicking a box, right?" Flora's the sweetest woman ever, and she would never laugh at me. So she took a big breath and kind of calmly told me that you were doing things with your lips, with your syllables, with and I got my nose up on the screen. I was like, "No, really." And so I I love telling that story to show my complete ignorance. Um, But then I'm like so enamored with how you do what you do. You took what we do. Probably it's an ancient art form, all this stuff. Uh, Bobby McFerrin was doing it. And and the guys um, probably, you know, in Detroit were doing it in the 50s. But I want to know how you brought it to us. Was it was it? The good graces of, you know, your teacher saying, check this out. Or was it, were you always doing beatboxing? And how on earth did you make it look so easy? Because I thought there was a box. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm old. I'm old. That's
1: that's right on. Hey, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, honestly, I came into beatboxing on the flute simply to be relevant and to find work playing the flute. Um Uh, I did graduate uh, having studied classical music and have been a classical flutist uh, since the fourth grade. But I started initially, my lessons were in Suzuki lessons. And so I learned to play by ear. And then as I switched teachers and kind of moved up, I grew up in Seattle. um, I had a very distinct classical path, but I had a teacher that was totally willing to just let me do and experience whatever kind of music I wanted. And I, I was not a beatboxer. Ever until well after college. Like way after. And I wish um that right after college I had figured this out and gotten all these sweet gigs. But it took me a very long time. It took me until I was about 30 years old to finally be a professional musician. And it was because I asked people if they wanted to hear my telemon, and everyone rolled their eyes. And so instead I was like, okay, I'll try to come up with something uh cooler. And so I could do all of this improvisation on the flute and I was hanging out with a lot of people that could already beatbox and kind of freestyle. And so I knew a bunch of rhythmic tricks on the flute and I just did my homework and I taught myself how to beatbox on the flute. And beatboxing uh, as, uh, you know, vocal percussion, I I agree. I think it's an ancient art. Um, But beatboxing kind of, as it's known now, is uh, they call it a shadow element of hip hop. Uh, And basically, uh, if you weren't going to bring back in the 70s at these block parties in the Bronx, if you weren't going to bring a drum set out to the gig and you didn't have a band, people would mix records. There'd be two turntables and a microphone and people could get on the microphone and make really great. Drum music, vocal percussion sounds, uh, and I knew all about this because I grew up in the a- the golden era of hip hop, uh, and consumed a lot of hip hop in the '90s, uh, and thought it was all really cool, but not something I could participate in. But then, as I got older, I realized I. My classical studies had taught me to isolate problems uh, and uh, seek out what I wanted to fix and then learn the skill. So I isolated the beatbox sounds I wanted to learn. I learned how to do them. They are very similar to basic flute production and sound. And I started putting them uh, together and... Would have stopped had no one cared, but all of a sudden people thought it was really interesting. I put up videos on YouTube and they kind of had a viral life. And, uh, this was, as you say, this was before people even had iPhones. So people had to go to the computer and go to YouTube and, you know, there was only one homepage, um, so I kind of hit some viral action before even anybody knew what that was, but that's given me a career and uh this was all happened in oh, you know, the the late 2000s. And uh, since then, I've really broadened the sounds that I can bring to the table and some of these concepts on the flute, what they can do, the limitations of these concepts and even how to get them out of the genre of hip hop um, and, you know, bring classical crossover to it and also playing with different genres, uh, be it rock, uh, bluegrass, classical jazz, these kinds of things.
0: were you acting principal in an orchestra or anything?
1: Uh, yeah. After I graduated from Cleveland, uh, after grad school, I was teaching and I was really bummed out because I wasn't performing anywhere. And I got a job handed to me uh, in Guangzhou, China. Basically, their flute player just like left the country. And the guy that ran the orchestra, his daughter, went to school with me and called me up and was like, how would you like a job in China? I was like, I would love that. And I, I went out for the summer and I got to play, you know, I was principal. I was the acting principal flutist of this orchestra. It was just for the summer. It was really awesome. Uh, and, uh, super exotic. It, it really, I'd never experienced anything like that. Not only being able to sit and play what I consider some of the most awesome music in the world, uh, orchestral classical flute music. You know, I was in a foreign country. I didn't speak the language. It was super interesting. And, uh, uh, I walked away from the contract because I wasn't sure if that was for me. I felt like I still had a lot of musical growth to do, even though I didn't know what that meant. Like I've really, uh, at that part of my life, really straddled the line between classical music and what I ended up calling non-classical music. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to be locked into a classical career. And so I sold everything I owned and moved to San Francisco. I'd never been there before. I, I didn't know anything about it. It just seemed cool. And, uh, that's where I started beatboxing. This would have been in 2003. I moved to San Francisco. I met my wife the first night I was there and she got into school in New York and we moved to New York in 2005. And then my videos hit on YouTube about two years later at the very end of 2006, early 2007.
0: Well, you were doing something that you shouldn't have been doing, and yet you were doing it. Like, this this guy graduated from Cleveland with a master's. I mean, come on. He's, he's one of the best ever. What are you doing? Did, was that pushback about your style?
1: Well, I have gotten a lot of pushback <laughs> as I've become an adult. Um, before I figured out even the beatboxing of what you should do, what you ought to do, what is classical, what isn't correct. Um, And and that's part of the reason why I moved. And I surrounded myself with people that had no idea about anything classical or that anything like that was correct. Just I would call them normal people. you know, who don't know anything about our tradition. And that's kind of my quipped <laughs> about the, the Telamon. I said, oh, I'll roll some Telamon through. And they didn't know what that was and <laughs> thought it wasn't cool because they don't, normal people don't know much about classical music. Uh, I, you know, like people that are involved in classical music know a lot about it have a lot of opinions about it. And even as we grow up studying classical music, before you can do the skill... <laughs> You have strong opinions about the skill. You know, we are taught that at an early age. You know, to use your ear to be able to tell when people are doing it right or wrong, at least according to your teacher's interpretation. And so part of me moving was to get away from that and not care what other people think anymore. And um, more of a pop aspect of professional music these days really is to consider what your audience would like instead of what your audience ought to have. And so I uh, have been a street performer since... uh, in high school, I realized I could just go out on the streets and play music and people would give me money. And, and I thought this was really amazing. And I, I found, you know, again, when I played only what I wanted, I didn't make as much money as when I tried to figure out what other people wanted to hear. Right. And so uh, a big aspect of my professional career now is trying to, uh, uh, really play a lot of different genres because maybe if you didn't like my set, you liked one thing in my set, you know, because I try to play one of everything. It's tough coming from a classical tradition and breaking away from it. Um, but I had no problem walking away from that, even though I love the music. And even though still I practice um I I practice some very intense classical foundational work. I work on the rep um, just for kicks. Like, I don't get paid to play Daphnis and Chloe, but I like to kick it in the practice room because you can learn a lot from, you know, the study of the minutia of... Um, orchestral excerpts I have the classical radio on 24-7 in my house uh, and I have a trained classical ear so I get lessons all the time, all these performers, world class performers are coming over the radio I listen to classical music, I love it I just don't really play it too much professionally anymore.
0: That is so cool I call the people that aren't involved in classical music civilians
1: There there you go, that's right
0: At Juilliard, I was in Grand Central Station, the acoustics were great, uh, with a wind quintet, and there were crowds everywhere, and it was kind of a very interesting moment for me to think, but wait, but wait, I want to play up on the ground (laughs) above the subway, and wait, I want to be in a building on 57th and, and, and 7th Avenue, don't I? Why am I down here in Grand Central Station with a woodwind quintet? Well, it turns out that this guy who arranged all these woodwind quintets, he's got, he's probably a millionaire because of all the arrangements, right? He was testing them out.
1: <laughs> That's so right. you have
0: to kind of put yourself in in a lot of shoes before you start barking about what people should be doing with their life in classical music. Uh, who knew that I'd be, you know, having a big mouth uh, one day, you know, but the pandemic hit and I wanted to help everybody. So I'm just... Thrilled that that you're here to um, kind of solidify that idea that it doesn't take just talking about it to make it, and it doesn't take just studying with the right person. It doesn't mean that with these etudes you will get a job. I don't know. It's just so life is so flexible. We have to be flexible with it, right?
1: So absolutely.
0: Was Ian Anderson an inspiration for you to kind of switch out of your element, or well, did you, you like you said you were just? In Seattle, growing up, hearing this stuff.
1: Uh, so, yes. So for those of you that don't know, Ian Anderson fronted a rock group, which is still around today, called Jethro Toll. And uh, I caught them on their 25th anniversary tour. And this would have been in like 92 in Seattle. And it was the first proper rock concert I ever went to. And it was really eye-opening on many levels. Uh, you know, there were a bunch of like really old people that I didn't think would like be having a good time partying and like living their best life, you know, we did. We engaging did. with the music of their youth. And like I sort of was just getting caught up on who Jethro Toll was. Um, you know, this was <clears throat> before the Internet. So like finding... Uh, things that you liked is very challenging. Like I remember going to the record store, like literally the record store where they sold records, <laughs> you know, not even CDs like Tower Records, um, trying to find things that would inspire me musically. And it was a challenge and it was an expensive challenge buying records. But this was a band. Everyone told me I should check them out. I I saw them. Uh, Ian Anderson, not only can he play the flute, but he can sing, he can play the guitar, but he also is extremely uh, dynamic in his motions. He would prance back and forth across the stage, and it was such a great show. Like, not only was the music solid, not only was his playing super interesting, but he he was visually stunning. And, And I came away from that realizing that there was a whole nother world of music that you can really get involved in. And and these people were enjoying themselves at the concert so much, and I, I wanted to be a part of that. I've studied all of his music. I routinely play his version of Box beret on our concerts, um, which is something I learned in high school. My band director had the sheet music to this. He had the solo all written up, and I memorized it, and I've been playing it ever since. And uh, so Jethro Tull was a huge, huge influence for me for like alternative pop flute style.
0: So that was your first proper, proper concert. I think my first proper concert was Kansas. And yeah, uh, nice. it, it, was, it was 19, yeah, for sure. And um, my husband now, at that time, was my best friend. He's a civilian. And so anyway, he had taken me to this concert for my 16th birthday, snuck me out of the house. I'm still in trouble for that. Then the next one was, are you ready? Blue Oyster Cult. That was Hmm. when Godzilla, right? Godzilla. And the big Godzilla comes out with the lights. I was there.
1: That's cool.
0: (laughs) Then there was the time when uh, my friend and I, Rented a car, drove to Hartford, and we just had to see the Grateful Dead. We didn't need to really experience the Grateful Dead as you were supposed to, but we were just, we needed to because we just had to see Jerry Garcia. And so I'll never forget that concert either because sitting, then what do you do after a Grateful Dead concert? You walk around, right? I've Mm -hmm. never moved so much in my life, right? I'm sitting on the curb realizing that, no, I didn't want to do what they were doing, which was living out of cars and tents and following this guy around. But it sure was cool, and it sure taught me a lot. I mean, I have stories, right, from Grand Central to to the Grateful Dead, to, you know, Godzilla, I, that kind of music I still listen to. And I, I still know the lyrics. And I could, if you did a drop the needle, Greg Patillo, I, I could probably name it.
1: You mentioned the Grateful Dead. They were a huge inspiration for me. Uh, I saw the Grateful Dead uh, right the last summer that Jerry Garcia was alive, and he was the guitar player of the Grateful Dead. And it was uh, a non-flute related blow my mind because I'd never seen people exist on this level. It was all Out in the sun. It was like the same place where I would end up graduating from high school right in downtown Seattle. It was super cool. Uh, It was the original lineup. And I was just, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was then 18, you know, really getting turned on with the world. And I've always, as much as I've admired um, Ian Anderson, I've always had a hard time being inspired by flute players. And even when I went to college on my first lesson, I studied with Josh Smith, principal flutist of the uh, Cleveland Orchestra. And um I said, I'm here. I'm ready to do this. What flute players should I listen to? And he said to me straight-faced, he's like, ah, don't listen to flute players. Listen to violinists and pianists. Yeah. And I was like, huh. And you know what? I... uh I've taken that advice, and I still, unless it comes on the radio, I don't listen to flute players. And uh, I listen to classical violin and piano. I love string quartets. I love solo classical piano music. I love to study it. Um, but for rock and roll purposes, I was always enamored by certain guitar players. Um, uh, and Jerry Garcia, uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, and Jimi Hendrix from Jimi Hendrix. And I thought these guys were really interesting artists, and I aimed to have my flute sound more like these classic rock guys than the hip-hop kind of stuff that I'm known for now. I didn't know this uh, until I was checking out your Wikipedia page, but you studied trumpet at the same time as flute, and you yeah, just mentioned for, that.
0: Yeah, for and, about eight or nine years, and I couldn't give it up. I loved it so much. So I'm actually a, a trumpet player in a flute player's body, but I really do think the trumpet came into my flute sound yeah,
1: but how uh, that's that must have influenced your flute playing to such an interesting degree not only from physicality of the lip strength uh, understanding the the pushback or the the back pressure in the mouth and how that changes on the flute um, you know learning other instruments not only being inspired by them learning other instruments really gets you out of your your box, like people say music is a language and all, but when I think about music, I find so often that I think about music as a flute player, um, which is very stark limits, and through the pandemic here i 've really been opening up playing with other instruments i've been playing the violin for the past five years, I play it terribly, but it's really good for your ear it's like the best thing you can do for your ear and it's the it's so hard you know to even play one note into i've also been playing a lot of piano dealing with these different instruments and what they can do um it you know especially as i find myself doing way more improvisation and composing now than just playing other people's music um that really opens up your mind. It opens up your ear and it shows you even the box that you were living in. If you only study one type of music, if you only study one instrument, that can get you very far, but you might find that you can broaden your understanding and even your inspiration by branching out, maybe finding other heroes and other genres or other instruments if you have the time to study.
0: And other clefs? Pianists have to read bass clef and treble clef at the same time. That's kind of why I drifted away from the piano. Uh, my dad was an amateur piano teacher, so I was his worst student for sure. Um, bass clef. I learned the Bach cello suites in the bass clef, and I transposed them to treble clef. And I have to say, my heart sank slightly to put them in treble clef. Uh, they sound beautiful, but um, to record them, I, you said I the loved I'm sorry, the Bach clef. cello suites. I recorded the yeah. Bach cello suites and then arranged them for Carl Fisher.
1: Wait, I want to just give you a shout out because I bought that book and it's great. I love studying those tunes yeah. and it's, it is a challenge looking at an Urtex cello thing and being like, uh, you know, and you cleared it all up. There's no problems with register. It's a great book. So for Thank those of you, you out there that are hungry for more Bach, get this book. It's, they work great on flute, and your recordings are great. And you got a, a number on YouTube as well. Uh, you do a number of them. So, uh, and it's great, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Back in the day, two turntables and a microphone. Uh, the Roland Company, maybe you even you have a Roland uh, tuner or uh, a Roland uh, metronome sitting around somewhere, like the Dr. Beat. Anyway, Roland made uh, the the 808 drum machine, okay? And it's a very popular drum machine, and it's in a lot of uh, some early hip-hop stuff and a lot of, like uh 80s rock. Anyway, it was this uh it was called co- it's kind of colloquially referred to as the beatbox because it was a little box that you'd program and it would make the beat. So beatboxers ended up imitating this machine that imitated drums. And so beatboxing has evolved to kind of sound like drums and synthesized rhythmic music. However, over the past 20 years, a lot of artists have really turned it into a vocal style, doing things with, uh, like, uh, if you know this guy Michael Winslow, he was famous on, like, if you saw Spaceballs. Or, like, uh, he was in a lot of 80s movies doing, like, uh, vocal effects. And that's, like, uses beatbox techniques, but more vocal, like, effects, like drills, robots. He can imitate uh, Jimi Hendrix guitar and all this. Uh, and so over the past 20 years, it's moved beyond just backing up vocalists into its own spotlight. Uh... uh beatboxer now can imitate tons of synth sounds, they can do vocals, they can do the beats. I'm a little vocally challenged, or at least I like to. That's my excuse. You know what I'm saying? So I use more of the percussion styles on the flute because it works. Um, a lot of beatboxers use a mic because a lot of the great sounds are really sensitive. And I I've been kind of a street performer, classical artist, like you'd see me on a acoustic stage, like where you'd see a string quartet. So I'm using sounds that can project acoustically, uh, you know, from where I am on a stage. Um, But real beatboxers <laughs> real. use a microphone to really get all of these sounds that they can do at the same time you can do your voice at the same time as all these other sounds uh, and the flute likewise as well so kind of that's where beatboxing is coming from and uh, I would say that um, studying these techniques, even if you never use them professionally or even just to amuse your friends, um, you will learn a lot because tearing down any problem and learning the skill—you uh, y- know—to go through that process, you end up learning so much. And on the flute, everything we do on the flute is inside of us. Y- you can't see any of it. You can't even see your fingers. Okay, and not many instruments are like that. And as you get adept on the flute and as you, you can hear other flutists and you know physically how they're making that sound on the inside, you know, that, uh, and actually, I know you teach an anatomy of sound class, which is a super interesting, uh, concept because, um, these are things I'm thinking about, not only the physicality, but where do these sounds come from? And, uh, uh, my kind of, Uh, the thing I've really been latched onto lately is how we compress air inside of us. Beyond just uh, the umbrella term support, which is just fine, but you can compress air in the chest, you can compress air in the throat, you can compress air behind the nose, the nasal pharynx is what they call it. Um, And even in the mouth, if you say R, to say R you curl your tongue to kind of whip your air in your mouth. There's all these tricks to whip air in your body. And it produces different sounds in different people. And so, you know, being able to hear what other flutists do and imitate it is a really good idea if you want to go on to be a professional flute player, to have a wide wealth of tonal, you know, palate. Um, but also studying different genres, studying these sounds, studying circular breathing, even if you don't ever figure it out, you will learn to save your air. You will learn what that even means, you know, to go through that process is only good. I can think of no detrimental part of uh, of this.
0: It's a great way to learn a vocabulary of sounds, right? I hear that. And, that's right. And that's developed over time, correct? You can't just- uh-
1: the whole th- our whole journey is over time. Uh, and uh, being a musician is owing up to the fact owning up to the fact that you will never learn everything there is to learn. And instead of getting bummed out about that, it's freeing. There's always more stuff to learn. There's That's always right. another song to memorize. There's always new people to play with. There's always new music to be created, even though we only have 12 notes. There is still unlimited music out there to be created. I put out, a year and a half ago, a book. It's volume one. It's an intro to beatbox. It's a method book where it isolates, uh, I think, four sounds in the book and just walks through making the sounds and making them with the flute in a vamp-oriented way so that there's a pattern that you can latch onto and you can change the pitches if you want. There's also... um, Past vamp, I have loops, which are more like uh, eight bar little sets that you repeat and you can improvise over. But it gives you like a problem to deal with, you know, like hitting the bass drum with the flute and at different times than the flute. I got over 20 of those in the book. I have a bunch of etudes in the book. And um, the idea being that you can slowly learn to put this together. It doesn't have to be a... Uh, a hard, crazy-hitting piece with all the bells and whistles. At first, we can slowly uh, get into it. I aim to make a lot more books because this was a challenge making a book having a simple approach to these sounds yet also have it sound cool, right? Like, if you're going to put in the work making and learning these sounds you should get applauded by the people listening to you doing this instead of like ah that was kind of lame sounding you know so this was a challenge there are a lot other sounds that i can add and get we can get it a lot more complicated as well and i aim to Uh, Obviously, I've been not performing over the past year, but I have a Patreon page and every week I'm putting up new compositions, loops uh, and concepts, beatbox concepts and just kind of whimsies. A lot of classical foundation, warm up stuff, scales. I wrote a scales book. Uh, I champion uh, 18 different scales people should be playing Uh, and, uh, you know, how I do my long tones is arpeggios these kind of things. And so Patreon has just been a place where I focus and I don't know. I get limited feedback from the people for some reason on Patreon, but I imagine it's not too over their head. I think that the videos that I'm known for, I'm doing a lot of flute playing and beatboxing all together and it can be a lot to bite off at first, but ensemble using a little bit of beatbox techniques um is really powerful, too. Uh, And if you have a number of flute players working together and each person takes one of the sounds, then together it sounds like a whole amazing thing, Uh, but everyone's kind of just doing a little bit of heavy lifting on their own. Uh, I haven't written those compositions yet, but I aim to, and especially once the world opens up and it can get out there and have a reason to be kind of delivering this music. I made a flute... Uh, ensemble piece called Squad Up for everyone beatboxes on the flute. It's for 10 flutes, uh, bass flute, alto flute, piccolo, two flutes. And it's like Squad A versus Squad B. And they kind of battle each other throughout the four movements. Uh, and I, I wrote it. Oh, it was, it's about four years old now. Uh, I, I, it was for the Greater Cleveland Flute Ensemble or Flute uh, Organization. But it's out there. It's published. I don't tell anyone. If anyone ever wants a copy, hit me up. I'll pass you the sheet music. Uh, It's a pretty interesting piece, and along this line, kind of um, spreads some of the sounds out to everybody.
0: how uh project trio is shifting gears musically as well because i've seen your concerts they're extraordinary you're very educational i'm sure there's a there's life after uh after you know 2020 so what are you guys doing
1: yeah i've been part of this group project trio it's flute cello and bass now and it's been my as much as i'm known for these youtube videos um they don't pay So my group pays the bills and is taking me all over the world. Uh, And we are uh, performers and we're very into education. And we have a lot of concepts kind of for classical people, how to, you know, how to improvise, how to create content. These are new concepts to most classical people. And like you kind of alluded to the jazz you know, situation where you're like, I don't want to do all the solo, but it's like, actually there's a really wonderful, loving way to get everyone on the same page, playing music together. It's really easy to do. Usually us classical kids got our big brains in the way, instead of just having fun and playing. And so we've been very successful with this. We haven't had any work for over a year. Um, We haven't, uh, I don't really know going forward, what's going to happen with us, But because everything's moving slow, I'll say one thing about having a professional career as awesome as it is to be able to play for a living. um, You get really busy doing what you have to do. And sometimes you don't get time to do what you want to do, even when your group is your labor of love and what you want to do. There's always more to be studying and you only have so much time. So I've been reveling this past year in my solo time. Well, a little. I'm a stay-at-home dad because my ki- I got two kids. They're in school, and it's been a nightmare with the whole COVID. Right. But I, I get to – you know, I, I have uh, – it's two sides of the coin. There's practicing, which is brutal, and it hurts every time, and it's focused, and I need a lot of coffee to do it. And then the other side of the coin is playing, and that's just – loving and playing and goofing around and being corny and um you know sometimes when you're playing around really good ideas can stick and i've spent uh this past year Really focused on trying to how I'm going to have a solo set. I would like to do Greg Patillo's solo stuff, going out there, uh, performing and educating. I can teach all these concepts to anybody. I don't care what their age is and I can make the, them accessible to people and I make the sounds Fun um, and memorable, so even when you leave, you will be able to make these sounds, and they will uh, augment how you listen to the music even around you. So, Project Trio going forward, man, the sky's the limit. We got all sorts of stuff that we're trying to do, but also I'm trying to do my own thing now too, and this has given me the time to kind of put that together, and uh, and I'll, I'll see where that uh, where that takes me.
0: Professor Patillo.
1: Ha! I wish.
0: Let's take a sneak peek into your book. Oh, yeah, uh,
1: okay.
0: What are some of the beginning sounds someone like myself who just has her flute out now? Oh, check it out. It's- what are some of the beginning sounds someone who wanted to learn beatboxing uh, would learn? Uh, like, is it really down to boots and cats? Is it really just.
1: Well, boots and cats is a framework. It's it's a mnemonic, it's words, so that you can think about it and hold a beat and hold a pulse. And maybe your mouth can latch onto those words so you can spend just a little bit more brain power to do variations of that or add some flute over it. So that's a great, um, Boots Cats uses three sounds. Each of those sounds comes from a different part of the mouth. Each of those sounds represent a different part of the drum. And each of those three sounds have... Uh, different levels of difficulty that are opposite on the flute. So the easiest sound is the closed hi hat sound, a ts sound. T's, t's. Easy. Everyone can make that sound. Yes. You can make that sound. T's. Yes,
0: um, but do t's. I? No, no okay. flute. Wait, no flute. Oh, no flute. Check this out. Okay. Here,
1: here's, here's the point: is that Tss is easy to do, t's, but it's extremely difficult to do with flute sound because you can't make a flute sound with an s. Go ahead. You want to try playing the flute with an S? Right. Like and play the pfft. Yeah, you get a beautiful aeolian tone, which is super useful, um, but it's hard to get. Uh, it's extremely difficult to get a real flute sound with TS, yes, so that's the easiest sound to make, hardest to do on the flute. Now, the hardest sound to make or the most challenging because we don't have it in our language is the bass drum sound, which we do with the lips. And I would imagine that your trumpet experience will aid you in this because it's like buzzing your lips, but it's just the first buzz. So instead of something like this, yeah, you know, it's, it's just the so, first one. So
0: instead of like a buzz where you just
1: like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'd go. You'd go. Yeah, but you need, and I can see, so this is part of the anatomy of this is you need to open the throat and you need to pressurize air behind the nose, kind of where, you know, when you see people go, when they smell wine and they waft it up behind the nose, or if you've had a COVID test, the early ones where they poked you in the back of your neck through your nose, that. I think is one of the most important parts about beatboxing, pressurizing there, pressurizing your air there and pushing down while opening your throat, dropping your jaw and bringing your lips. Oh, did you just do it? I did it. Bringing your lips around your teeth, which is very much, you know, my teacher always told me to imagine peanut M&Ms between your molars when you play to open the mouth, to get more space in the mouth. You also have to do all this neck and behind the nose stuff. And you can also add buzzes, and you can do it. There's all sorts of different ways to make this sound. But um, what you do is, are you going to do it again? Do it again.
0: I can't do it. I sound like I'm farting.
1: But okay. as, as you know, I know, that when you confront it with a skill and you can't do it, you don't try it five times and you say, "Ah, oh, I suck. I'll never I get know, this. Right? For those of you that drive, driving is the best place to be beatboxing. Okay. Turn the radio on, and if you can't do the p- sound, you do it with whatever you're listening to. You know, even okay. if it's the Debussy String Quartet, it can still work. You know, and so that you just do the sound a bunch and try to, um, you try to get it uh, nuanced. See if you can get a higher one and a lower one. But this B sound, even though it might be a challenge for people, is the easiest to get a clean flute sound, um, so that you can actually make this sound with the flute. Like, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, but the easiest thing yeah. for, for anyone to be doing is this middle sound, the snare sound, the K, okay? Yeah. So it's a bit stylized. It's not just K. <laughs> we don't use our voice. Okay. And it's not just K like kit. It's not K. K. It's K, K. You hear there's a little bit of air through the teeth. Like yes. I'm saying, curry or curtain. Or curtsy. Curtain. Yeah, right? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, and so I would say a great place to, be, you can do that with an Aeolian flute tone, no problem. So you can go. And Aeolian just means, you know, it's like beginner band tone. You don't close the mouth, the flute doesn't happen. And it's very expressive, you get about octave and a half of it. So we can go... I just did a simple vamp there, A's and B flats, and really this is a study in the backbeat. The backbeat is beat two and four of a bar. Um, if you've ever watched a jazz concert, uh, the band counts off using backbeats. Uh, you count off using two and four. Knowing where two and four in a bar is super important. Knowing how that hits in a phrase, the snare drum usually hits on two and four. Backbeat music is is something you should be paying attention to, and if you can play a any melody with the backbeat, that is a great place to start. So even Mary Had a Little Lamb. Can you hear it? It's coming Awesome. Through. So any folk song you can play, it's going to be like patting your head, rubbing your tummy, you just want to get this accented, airy sound on the backbeat. And that is a great place, I think, to start rhythmic flute playing. And it's not even hip hop. That's not beatbox. It's just adding a backbeat to it. Does that I make I had
0: to play, yes.
1: That's, that's really where it starts, I think. That's where any flute player can start uh, adding this. You can use it with the rep you're working on right now, as long as it's in two or four.
0: Samuel Barron would put the metronome on during a Bach sonata and say, this is beat two and four. Mm. So I had to play Bach with the offbeats, and it wasn't
1: easy. It's, it's hard. It can be really hard to internalize this, because classical music is all about the downbeat. And the strong beats, they call beat one and three. You know, strong beats. It's very classical.
0: Bass, drums, and melody. I mean, really you've combined them all in in one artistic you know pleasurable form. I love this. It's it was certainly modern for me and I'm I'm so happy to know where the term beatbox actually came from. Um I didn't mm-hmm. know that Roland It was the Roland company made the original beep Yeah, the
1: TR-808. And nowadays, uh, this is still uh, emulations of this machine. Now they got digital versions instead of the analog version. Are what makes, like if you listen to anything with a trap beat if you even know what that is. Uh, trap beat is kind of like a, a modern kind of hip-hop sound production uh, style. Um, and that's all 808-driven. It's all, They're still using this machine today. It's in all of the music people are. Li- if you're listening to pop music, chances are 808 is already being used in it still today. It is a modern workhorse in the studio.
0: And with your Loops book, Uh, Mm -hmm. can we use it with the loop station? Like the kids now all have these loop stations. So you play your loop in and then you program. And is that the style that
1: no, definitely you, you definitely can. Um, And I believe, I mean, I I love, I don't use electronics on the stage um, just because of the nature of my group, but using electronics in the practice room is super important. And using a loop pedal at all is a great way to immediately hear whether you hit what it is that you're trying to hit. It's also a great thing to be able to improvise over. And to my point about all these beatbox sounds with a loop pedal, you can loop in each sound and then your flute over it. And often when I'm doing recordings uh, and have multi-track abilities, um, I like to beatbox separately from my flute because I can get more options. I can get more sounds. Some sounds you just can't do with the flute. Um, and using electronics is, I think, the the way forward in music. I wouldn't be surprised if, in my lifetime, I see in music schools people being admitted uh, for like uh, MIDI instruments. You know, like a MIDI triggering device will be like an actual major. I think because what you can do with synths and sounds and how that programs is where music is going.
0: Yeah, we are we are headed for something, and you are here to, to help us. Um, I actually did a little bit of beatboxing today. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe it. I'm not going to be so afraid. I'm not going to get fear to lead me on this one.
1: Nah, no way. No it's way. It's fun. It's really a party fun. starter. <laughs> it is. That's what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> so I want to have just a moment to really lament the fact that we have to postpone our masterclass together we were going to meet uh, in the beautiful mountains of North Carolina but we will
1: yeah i'm um, looking and, forward to it
0: and and we will and we will both bring you kept saying love of music and that is so true you just bring a lot it's just a lot of love that you radiate and that's why i adore you and i Mm, can't wait to teach with you i'm such a fan and uh i'm so glad to be educated by you so thank you for for your time this morning on on porter flute pod we really appreciate it
1: great to be here thanks
0: Thank you, Greg Patillo, for being in Porter Flute Pod. It was so exciting for me to host you, and it's going to be great when we get to go to Brevard Music Center and teach together next summer. You can find Greg Patillo at patillostyle.com. That's pattillo style.com. And Project Trio can be found at ProjectTrio.com join us next time on porter flute pod we have been doing a series called stay well play well we've talked about physical health and mental health so we're going to talk about emotional and spiritual health next time you can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com for students and on twitter instagram facebook and youtube i'm porter flute thanks again for being here i'm so grateful for you